0: I'm Dr. Gene Hempster For more than 25 years, I've been answering your financial questions on Atlanta's longest-running and most respected money show on radio. This is Money Talks, providing honest,
1: straightforward answers to your financial questions. This broadcast of Money Talks originally aired Saturday, December 15, 2018.
2: The only thing we have to fear... The economic health of this nation has been... Four essential economic freedoms.
3: The excessive decline... We. ...in the dollar... ...it's a late rally on Wall Street... It's ...too big to fail... ...growing the economy... ...growing the economy... ...it's amazing what's been going on with the economy. Welcome. 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 Yeah.
2: This is Money Tool. Talk. Money Talk. Yeah. Good Saturday morning, you're listening
0: to Money
2: Talks, the longest running, most respected money show on radio. I'm your host, Nick Antonucci, joined today by K.C. Smith and Jim Crone, K.C. from our planning department, and Jim Crone from our insurance division, hello, so hello, changing hello. it up a little bit. No we, we got... for an exciting show today. Oh yeah, We're insurance.
0: That's grab, right. your, grab your coffee and That's away right. we go. <laughs> exactly. You know, when when we –
2: we'll bring in, obviously, experts from different uh, departments on each show, and and the two that I always hope that you can talk the most about are taxes (laughs) and insurance because they are two areas that I'm the most detached from in my day-to-day job. So it is nice to have you on here today, Jim, and and be able to kind of help us with some end-of-year insurance planning. You know, the past few weeks we've kind of touched on some end-of-year tax planning uh, financial planning for the end of the year. Um, I've chimed in on some of the things from portfolio management that you can do. And, you know, one of the last areas we have to talk about is, you know, your insurance that's planning right. for the end of the year. So, Here we last go. Last but not least. That's right. Exciting stuff in store for today. Well, guys, it continues to be an interesting week in markets as we head to the end of the year. If you've been listening or watching the markets
0: the seat, for the last
2: month, yeah, it is. it has been a wild ride. Um, so far this week, it's good though. You know, we're up, we're up, uh, out. Oh, we're up for the year now. We're not up, uh, for the one week. We're still down 1.82%. Um, and we're up 0.83% on total return basis year to date for 2018 healthcare leading the way up 12.71% utilities, 11.17. And then you get some of your more discretionary type sectors, uh, consumer discretionary, and information technology up six about six percent each. So
0: what yeah, once are,
2: was the high flying—it's funny you have two defensive sectors followed by two of the more you know cyclical sectors yeah, in there. Yeah,
3: and that's I think I guess more middle of the year when we saw the, the big rally back from the February declines. Right, know, technology and consumer discretionary just went leading the, the roof. way. Yep, um, but we've seen them come back to the pack quite a bit, and now healthcare and utilities, which are as you mentioned, Nick, more defensive um, are leading the way year to date. Um, with you know consumer discretionary now up about six percent on the year, and information technology, which was what was the high of the year? Do you know? Was it like twenty five percent up? It on had to be close back? to
2: that. Yeah, twenty four somewhere in there.
3: Because uh, now it's only up you know five point eight one percent on the year, so it's pulled back. Quite I mean, a bit. look
2: where the Nasdaq is off its highs, and you can see a perfect example of that yeah, quickly exactly. in a chart. The um, Two of the worst-performing sectors this year, you've got financials and materials um, at the bottom. Financials down 11 percent, materials down 13.4 percent. And that's what you'd
3: expect if you're in a rising interest rate environment.
2: It, it, well, you know, that, but also there was a lot of talk in the beginning of the year that you would get a steepening of the yield curve. Which would be good for banks, yeah, absolutely, um, and that obviously, based on those numbers, has not really come to fruition and and if you have been listening to the show, last week we talked about a slight inversion of the yield curve, you have the three year yield more than the five year yeah um and it really, the yield curve remains very flat, yeah, so you you don't have banks getting that steepening oh. yield curve that benefits them
3: yeah.
2: um, and then materials you've had commodities that that have been struggling it's you know it's a Good thing to talk about right now, and we can kind of relate this into what's going on globally. You've got uh, the ECB came out and they cut their growth estimates today. Uh, we record the show on Thursday, so on Thursday, ECB came out, cut their growth estimates, um, announced that they're formally ending their bond buying program. Now there's still no talk of when they're actually going to start raising rates. Honestly, where we are right now, I don't, I don't know when they could possibly do that.
3: Well, and that's the thing that we've talked about before, you know, on this show and with clients, is that. That's the, one of the vulnerable areas we see with Europe is that if we do go into a recession domestically, which we're overdue for, they're really not going to have any way to combat I mean that's obviously going to bleed over into Europe and the international markets and they're not going to have any tools at their disposal to to combat the recession yeah so we're
2: the only ones really tightening in, in terms of raising rates yeah, and you know on that topic, well, first to finish up my thought on, on europe you of them not being able to raise rates anytime soon. You've got Germany and Italy, both both in the third quarter, uh, reported an economic contraction. So I don't see how you can really raise rates no,
3: you, it's in not a, a situation good, good like that. No, it's not a good to be when you're uh, contracting and then trying to, to tighten the money
2: right. supply. So. And then we had an uh, important vote this week um, in regards to Brexit, keeping Theresa May as prime minister. um she remains.
3: Yeah, were you surprised by that at, at all, helm. Nick? Or,
2: I mean, I think kinda... the final vote was like 200 to 117. So um, I, I figured it probably would have been a little bit closer. But I still don't know. It's hard to say what's going to happen with the Brexit because, you know, a hard Brexit, and and obviously it could be very detrimental. But I think Europe kind of wants to try and make it. The, the European Union wants to make an example of them to say, yeah. Hey for for those of you who are thinking about sitting on the following yeah <clears throat> yeah take a you, look yeah exactly this is what it's going to do to you um so a lot to be seen there it it is going to be an interesting ride as we close out 2018 moving to 19 um trade war concerns still lingering yeah mm-hmm. it, it's a it's a day to day you know, fluid situation. It really is the
3: market is so uh tuned in. Yeah, they they re- react very quickly to any news at all about <laughs> trade trade talks. I mean, just today, being as Nick mentioned, we recorded on Thursday, market gave up 200 points and Yeah, was up like 260
2: something points at the high and yeah, it's like no, flat now. Flat.
3: So, and that's not been uncommon. We've seen these big mm-hmm. moves day to day, a lot of it due to, you know, relatively insignificant news but if you mention the word tariff the market goes crazy well, one direction or and another and i'm curious
2: yeah. to see if it starts taking the approach that for a while there when terrorist attacks became more common early on you know the market would swing anytime yeah. something happened and then it became kind of immune to it so yeah. mm. does the market start to discount you know these conversations until there's something material happening
3: yeah i mean um, and if you look rationally at it i mean the the tariffs while They'll be important to some extent. They're really not going to impact the economy all that much. I mean, no matter which direction they end up going, if they, you know, cut back on some of the tariffs or, or continue to enforce them, um, it's not the overall impact of the economy is not that significant, right? So, I just, you know, the market kind of overreacts and then has to in both, itself. in both ways, yeah, in both ways, in both, yeah, in in both both ways. Areas,
2: sure. Um, so next week, we're you know talking about rates and whatnot. Next week we have got our our December Fed meeting. Seems pretty likely we are going to get that rate increase. It, a lot of people were questioning, oh, is the Fed going to pump the brakes? Was the most, were the most recent minutes a little more dovish? Some comments out of Jerome Powell. It seems like we will get that that rate increase, that last one for the year, making it our fourth. But expectations for 2019 have really come down. Economists are really like, only expecting two rate hikes next year now compared to 4 if you look back even a month two months ago right. expectations were for four hikes in, in 2020 so you you have started to see some some cracks developing in the global economy that that may you know tell the fed slow up a little bit
3: yeah yeah i mean we've seen the the volatility just in the stock market that is giving i mean a lot of politicians anyway some grounds to go after Jerome Powell and say what are you doing you're yeah. killing this economy and i mean especially for you saw what happened in the midterm elections. We're starting to see how the econo- the economy can impact, you know, the election cycle. And we're going to be coming in on, you know, 2019. We're two years away from another presidential election. are right.
0: aren't we always in an election cycle? I mean, just, yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's like a, it, yeah. It's a perpetual... Uh, you know, motion. That is true. And
2: and, and another thing is if you look at there's a Wall Street Journal article out uh, today, if you have access uh, to the Wall Street Journal, where it talks about kind of economists expectations. They did uh, uh, an economist poll recently. And it seems like most economists are feeling 2020 is when we're going to have to start cutting rates again. Perhaps that's when, you know, the the next recession is. And, you know, we've talked about we think we're late cycle, Mm -hmm. um, but not Necessarily right on the cusp of recession, another you know 18, 24 months, and that kind of lines you up there. So, um, it seems like we kind of share the same opinion as far as that goes. But we'll dig into some of the economic releases last Friday, which didn't get covered in the previous show. We had uh, the latest employment situation report. 155,000 jobs were added to the economy. Not a great number, enough to keep up with population growth, um, but economists were expecting 195,000. So bit of a disappointment there. Unemployment stayed at 3.7%, and, you know, some good news is you saw wage growth pick up again, which for the longest time has kind of been the weakness in the employment in the employment picture. Um, also on Friday, latest University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey um, came in at 97.5, basically the same as it was in November. You saw consumer assessment of current conditions improved, but expectations, so forward-looking, uh, that component of it fell. So even consumers seemed to be a little – bit uh less sure of what's to come uh in the months and year ahead. Um skipping now we got a couple of inflation data points out for the week. Producer price index we saw um rise 0.1% in November. That's compared with a 0.6% gain in October. Um final demand services were up 0.3% while goods fell 0.4%. So then you had consumer price index the next day. PPI is kind of a precursor. CPI is what we watch and it's not even what the Fed uses they use the PCE, but anyway, it's it's a pretty good approximation of what you'll see there. Same thing, the CPI was unchanged in November, in line with uh, consensus expectations. Energy was a drag, falling 2.2 percent, as we all know. Oil prices have been down; we've been seeing that at the pump. Um, so, all in all, inflation is relatively in check, still hanging around that 2 2.2 percent. Um, year over year so guys i think it's probably a good time for us to take a quick break when we come back we'll cover a few more indicators that came out last week and uh we'll dive into the financial situation with jim Your host, Nick Antonucci, joined today by Casey Smith and Jim Crone, guys. Kind of left off there talking about economic indicators from the previous week and talking about producer price index and consumer price index. And as we go through the week's releases, typically I try and make a point to say whether this is good or bad, or at least, you know, make it, if I don't explicitly say that, you can kind of understand. And inflation are one of those things where it's hard to say, well, is that good? You know, inflation was up 2.2%. Is that good? Is that bad? And you know, basically the Fed tries to keep inflation around 2 percent, their target range. And as long as we're in the ballpark of that, we're generally happy. You don't want high inflation, super high inflation, hyperinflation where you know companies can't really predict what they're going to be paying for inputs and how they're going to price their products. And you also don't want ridiculously low inflation or deflation to the point where consumers put off purchases because they know the, the price is going to continue to fall or – Just sitting in cash is better than going out and consuming anything, so they end up putting off consumption.
3: Well, and and low inflation or deflation actually hurts savers uh, tremendously. And and you know when we talk about our clients, most of them are savers or they're retired, so they're living off of a large portion of fixed income investments. And and if we've been in a situation for so long now where you can't really, you haven't been able to earn much return on fixed income investments, and it's Partially a, a function of the low inflationary environment that we've been right,
2: in. and so what the Fed does is that you're going to have easy money policies, are going to cut interest rates, try yeah. and spur that, you know that that Economic people come growth. out and yeah, growth, borrow more money, spend right. more money, that sort of thing. So that's one of those uh, questions that comes up, um, you know, uh, well all things is in moderation, exactly. Right? Is that good or is that bad? The last release we got for the week were jobless claims, uh, initial claims for unemployment plunged twenty seven thousand two hundred six thousand. And continuing claims uh, increased 25000 but the four-week moving average fell by about 2500 So all in all, the trend's good there. Um, employment picture still looks bright. Uh, and interest rates. Last week, we saw a huge jump. This week, it's been a- almost completely flat. You had the two-year unchanged at 2.7%. You had the 30-year rise one basis point to 3.15%. Uh, on the mortgage side of things, you saw the 30-year uh, mortgage fall 10 basis points to 4.67%. So um, that actually led to a second week of um, increases in mortgage applications, something we haven't been seeing for a while. As you know, the housing market has been shaky to say the least lately, but it right. seems like this pullback in in uh, interest rates and, and mortgage rates is maybe spurring some people to finally either refinance or kind of get out there and purchase that home, which surprises me. I sa- I said this last week. So let's say the you know mortgage rates came down ten basis points. How many people does that? Are oh, jumping. that's that's the number that's where the number. now now it makes sense. I don't know. Yeah, it, it does
3: seem a little bit arbitrary to look at a small move in in mortgage rates and think that that would have a tremendous impact on you know consumer sentiment in that regard. Right, but it, but it does apparently. There must be some kind of threshold. That but that is says at. so. Yeah, um, but
2: yeah. I won't question it. But. Well, guys, um, that kind of covers the, the previous week and what we've had going on. But to shift gears a little bit here, um, we're going to dive into our financial situation for the week end um, of your tax planning. So in this situation, you've got Rosen Curtis, uh, who acquired a term life insurance policy shortly after their daughter was born to cover a surviving spouse should something happen to one of them. Their policy is about to expire, but their son still has three years of high school and college left. At today's prices, they know that their current policy may not be enough to maintain a similar lifestyle, and they read about life insurance that has a return of premium and wonder if this may help them out in the future years, assuming that they don't ever use the policy. If they got a uh, return of a return of premium policy to last through their son's college years, they would likely be in their early 50s and may use the uh, the refund for long-term care policies. Yeah. So, Jim, you know – what do you do if your if your term life insurance policy is about to expire? Um, and you could probably walk us through some just general end-of-year tax planning tips. They do, do dovetail.
0: Plan. Oh, yeah, insurance plan. I, I just, there I go again. I was going to say, the tax side, I'm not going to be able to give a lot of <laughs> That was last on. week. Yeah. I know. But from an insurance standpoint, maybe I can offer a, an item or two. But it's interesting because their scenario <clears throat> does dovetail with a lot of the things we try to talk to uh, clients about. As they end up the year with uh, typical planning topics, we want to uh, take an assessment of where they are. And in this particular scenario, with a few more years left on their term policy, the legitimate question is, what's there, what's your, wh- where do you look at beyond? And so, what's happened in the term insurance marketplace is uh, we have seen a pretty steady reduction in rates. Um, So, for example, somebody who is today 50 years old um, potentially could actually go back into the market and enter and purchase a policy that would extend their length of coverage at probably something very similar to the rate they're currently paying. So, for example, in this scenario, there's only a few more years left. There's probably three or four more years left on their term policy. But we look at the raw number. And say, okay, well, if you're paying X for your premium, if we were to go today and go find a new policy, maybe we could take the same details that you have, the coverage you have, uh, the premium you're paying, and actually lock in a longer term, to with all those details the same. Um,
2: so in that th- case, are you is your are you replacing your current one?
0: Yes. Okay. Okay, so that's a we'll just say it's a wholesale replacement. But the only way you would get there is if you did some kind of pre. Uh, determination about whether or not they could qualify, right? We actually have a tool that really has been extremely helpful. We call it our underwriting advocate. And it's we, we access underwriting details from up to 15 different insurance companies. They've pre-populated a lot of the, the mundane details that are necessary, height, weight, sure. family history, those kind of things. And that profile that we access up front from a client gives us some extremely valuable data to go into the market and see without having to jump through all the hoops of a formal underwriting process. So that's a big step that we've been able to navigate with helping clients determine. Most In this scenario, we definitely are looking to extend the coverage. They want to make sure that they have uh, something that would replace his income in the event that he died prematurely and right. that's that's, and that's the, the vast
3: majority of the things we see. Yeah, that's the important phrase right there, Jim, is the replacement of income. I mean, if if you, we we see a lot of clients coming to us with uh you know term policies that are about to expire right around the time that they're going to retire. Mm. And I mean, that's exactly the perfect you, perfect time frame for, for for having an insurance policy expire, a term policy because That's right. After you retire you don 't need income replacement anymore right. that 's kind of the way we view insurance I mean for life insurance, I mean you can use it for other things and strategic,
0: strategic other uses so yeah. a, a, from yeah.
2: someone who who doesn 't know you know the insurance world very well is that is that an opportune time to do you continue to have when that expires you extend that and get another uh, term policy or does it make sense to do something more towards long term
0: care? So in this particular fact pattern, their primary concern was wanting to protect that income. So that was our focus. There was a comment that was put in here by the client. They've been introduced to something called a return of premium policy. Right. Uh, We'll take out of the details and kind of go for a big picture to say from my 27 years of experience, it's been that uh, it's best to focus on a single issue policy. Right? So if protection of income is what you're focused on, term insurance does a phenomenal job at that. The rates are extremely competitive. Back to something I was going to get to before, but um, actuarially speaking, um, the, the insurance companies have fine-tuned their rates. And so what we find is uh, as people live longer, it allows the insurance companies to sharpen the pencil. Sure. And therefore, new rates available today are likely to be very much better than what they were 5, 10, 15 years ago. So that's the reason and rationale for how they can get to these rates today that are competitive against some of the older rates. Um, in my opinion, somebody looking at a return returner premium is um, trying to do two things with one policy, mm-hmm. and that kind of gets to an area where I don't find that it's it's all that attractive. The, the net effect, I mean, the concept the the returner premium would start at, say, a 15-year term if you pay $1,000 of uh, annual premium over the next 15 years, the concept is you'll have a full $15,000 after your term has expired to return to you. Well, that's no return.
3: Yeah, right. Exactly. That's <laughs> there is all, no return. It's all your money back.
0: You got all your money back with no other investment. That doesn't include, that consider
2: inflation either.
3: No. Not really, you have yeah. less money.
0: Exactly. exactly. Purchasing power-wise. So it's clever from a standpoint that... Um, these insurance people get away creative. with it Oh, yeah. They're creative. They can they can report all kinds of returns. It's
3: and,
2: funny. It reminds me of, like, we see clients bringing these structured products a lot of times. And, yeah. and most of the time, like, these
0: things are written to make the company money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, look... Uh, in one sense, some people can get an idea and say, gosh, I wish I wouldn't have just thrown all that premium. Well, if a return of premium policy would, would pay $1,000 a year, well, maybe a non-return of premium, just pure term, might be somewhere at $750. But in that scenario, obviously, if you live for the full 15 years, you have, in fact, had the coverage, but you you, in many people's mind, it's wasting of money. Well, you've had protection. Sure. So. Yeah. And that's what
3: you buy insurance for. I mean, it, it is to protect against a catastrophic event or an event that you couldn't otherwise, you know, cover out of your normal cash flow. So, yeah, uh, you know, the the fact that, I mean, we could go we could go on for a long time about different types of insurance right. and and uh, how they are structured and how they actually, you know, report their returns to you, uh, which is kind of some some interesting
2: math sometimes. But we'll we'll save that for another another show. Absolutely. Well, guys, we're going to take a quick break and pay some bills. Uh, When we come back, we'll uh, do the dog and answer some uh, listener questions. You're listening to Money Talks. We'll be right back. Of the week, so I've struggled filling it. You know, you just can't top Troy when it comes to dogs of the week. <laughs> no, no. Not he, only the topics, but the delivery. His, <laughs> he, he's just got the delivery down. He does. He's, he's got it down. I he mean, I thought we had a good one last week. I think you have to have a mustache to have the, just the delivery. Well, no, maybe I'll try that. Although he'll be back by by the time I can grow <laughs> a any mustache that's comparable to his. But this week's uh, dog of the week. I don't know if you blame the Minnesota Vikings or the fan base as the dog here, but as someone who comes from uh, a passionate fan base, (laughs) Philadelphia Eagles, I I appreciate them voicing their, their frustrations. As of Tuesday afternoon, the Craigslist posting of U.S. Bank Stadium has been flagged for removal. A Vikings fan is making his frustrations with the team clear after putting... It's stadium up on Craigslist. That is (laughs) great. This Grunwood fan posted U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis on the classified advertisements website following the Minnesota football team's 21-7 loss to the Seahawks Monday night. So the post read, for sale, lightly used billion-dollar stadium, (laughs) Occupant has been a team that only has success in breaking the hearts of the fans. Long history of collecting talent with no ideas on how to use them. Included... $84 $84 million quarterback who can't win against teams with winning <laughs> records and is 0 and 7 on Monday Night Football, a league record. All reasonable offers considered will even entertain ideas to convert to a homeless shelter. Is there a greater chance of one of those folks being uh, becoming a success? Pictures wow. included is the stadium, a dumpster fire, and then the map of where it is. That is classic. That is classic. I love the done. fans, you know, just voicing their frustrations. You'll see them take out billboards sometimes. Yeah.
0: You know, you could almost insert name of NFL team here right, right? Exactly. yeah, Just- yeah. Pick the one that you're passionate I'm thinking, about. i want to
3: put Mercedes-Benz Stadium up for <laughs> up for auction. <laughs> yeah. Put it on eBay or something. Although
2: I think Atlanta United now to that, one. that yeah, one. Yeah, that's true. can get, get, get rid of it, it now. That's
3: that's that like the, uh, I saw after Derrick Henry ran for like four touchdowns against Jacksonville a couple of weeks ago that they the Wikipedia page, somebody changed it to Derrick Henry as the owner of the Jacksonville <laughs> Jaguars. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. I love yeah. it when
2: you get those quick changes and they yeah. catch them before they revert back to the factual statements. Oh yeah, I thought Classic. that was funny.
0: Classic.
2: Well, you know, last few weeks, as I mentioned, we've been talking about end of year planning. And uh, Casey, something you and I um, have, you know, recently gotten additional education on, and it's a it's a topic that you don't realize is so common uh, until you really dive into the curriculum. Yeah. Um, but it's the idea of exit planning. You know, as you, as you come to the end of the year, you start making these New Year's resolutions, and depending where you are in your life, if you're a business owner. Maybe it's finally time that you start thinking about, what is the future of my business?
3: Well, and you say finally time because it's – I mean, exit planning, really one of the focus of the curriculum that we just went through uh, to get our – we got this designation called the SEPA, Certified Exit Planning Advisor. Um, One of the the focuses of that is that exit planning is really just good business strategy. It is. It's not all about – the the exiting of a sale of your business. And
2: and I and back to me saying finally time to think about it. It it doesn't matter if you're thirty years old, or yeah. if you're if you're forty, fifty, the earlier you start, the better. Yeah. Plan with some, the end
0: in mind. Exactly. Right. exactly. Yeah.
2: You know, this isn't something you start a year oh, I think I'm ready to retire next year. Well it's a little late to be starting to think about this. I mean it's never too late.
0: Sure.
3: But
2: you're better off.
3: It's just like financial planning. You know, I mean, a lot of we encourage clients to start thinking about financial planning, even if they're 30 years old. You you know, you may be 35, 40 years from retirement, but uh, it's never too early to start planning. And usually the better outcomes are had when you start planning earlier. Um, Exit planning is no different. And uh, I think, you know, we've got some research here, some data from the – This is a market study that is done by the Exit Planning Institute uh, called the State of Owner Readiness. And this this one
2: focuses on Georgia. Yeah, focused
3: on Georgia. And I think Nick's got some statistics that we found a little surprising.
2: Yeah, Uh, so 65% of the Georgia sample of business owners are 53 years of age or older. So, you know, they fall into that baby boomer category and and are nearing their retirement age. And although 91% of business owners indicated agreement um, with the statement – that having a transition strategy is important for both my future and for the future of my business. So even though 91% of business owners agreed with this statement, there's only a small percentage of those, about 30, that have actually done anything.
3: Taken
0: step
2: one. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And that's done anything. I mean, that's uh, – Yeah. Thought about uh, it. (laughs) Right, right. Um, I mean, it's clear that a lot of business owners
2: believe that it's important to plan – for an exit strategy, or to have an exit strategy, but and there's so much to consider. So not just really how do you want to transition the business, but do you do you want to transition it altogether? Do you want to do you want to continue to collect income off that? Because you can't outright sell it if you want to continue to receive cash flows from it. Is that required? And I think kind of step one, as they referred to in the curriculum, Casey is the triggering event. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of clients who are business owners, and you'll ask them what their business is working. They'll give you this. Worth and they'll give you this number. Well, what is that? Where do you come up with that number? Well, my friend told me that they sold their business at five times EBITDA. Okay, well, what kind of business did they have? Mm. Right. Um, Mm. Was it more financially stable than yours? Uh, Was it run more efficiently? You know, there's a number of different factors that can play into that valuation. And sometimes it's totally off base. So if you're a business owner looking to transition 10 years from now or now, get a business valuation done
3: yeah absolutely have
2: have a, a you know a basis for why you say your business is worth five million dollars or why it's worth ten million dollars not just oh it's my back of the envelope calculation yeah because that matters
3: it does and the other the other thing that's important and people don't really realize i mean while the market sets those multiples they they really just set the range of multiples so you know when you hear about somebody selling their business for eight times EBITDA okay well that's great, but the range for that business may be you know eight to twelve times EBITDA. And so they got on the low end of that range. So there there may have been some things they could have done to position the business more. uh, Absolutely. Much
2: better within Uh, that range. You think of things that we encountered in the case studies we've worked on. It's some businesses, maybe they're they're concentrated for customers. They have four customers that account for 80% of their revenue. Well, that's a huge concentration issue.
3: Yeah. And you take discounts for things like that. Absolutely. Um, And so there's a lot that you can do that you may not be thinking about. You know, the other... Another component to it is, what are you, how are you using the business today? I mean, is it a lifestyle business? Or are you drawing the income out of it? And right. You, you really, you know, need it. I think a lot of our clients fall into this category where they, they can't really sell the business because they're,
0: they're it is them. It is <laughs> them.
3: They are, they are the business and they also are, you know, they're using, they're spending out of the business resources for their personal lifestyle, uh, which is, you know, Acceptable to do is just gonna. That's not going to maximize the value of your business at transfer, uh, and that's really what it's all about is to to make it so that it is transferable. For one, I mean that's most importantly. Can you sell it? Can you transfer it to the next generation? Is it a family business? Um, are you looking to to try to pass it on to children or grandchildren or other you know family members?
2: And um, it doesn't just stop there. It, it you know exit planning goes beyond the sale of the business. Well. You need to know what you're going to do. Okay, if I sell my business, right. then what am I going to do? Yeah. What am I going to do in retire? I'm going to retire. Okay, well, what does that mean? Because if you've run this business for the last 20, 30 years, all of a sudden it's not yours anymore. Right. You know,
0: that's it's a new a world. It's a whole new issue. world. It yeah. is.
2: It's a big emotional issue. And you need to, you know, have ways that you're going to occupy your time. And, and, you know, these need to be specific. It's not just, oh, I'm going to play golf. Right. That That's going you're not going to do that forever.
3: Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can only play golf for so long. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, I mean, that might be a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it might be. It might be. Um, but you know, things can happen that can derail even the best laid
2: plans. And and the, go
3: ahead, Jim. Nick.
0: I was just going to say, you know, your first comment was you ask somebody what is your business where they give a number, it's a back of the napkin number. But that is a factor that they have already put in their head. That's exactly where I want to they, go with this. They they do their planning essentially based their on retirement that. planning is based on the fact. Well, my business is worth five million dollars.
2: Yeah. Well, that doesn't. First of all, it doesn't take into account the fact that how's this deal going to be structured? How many companies go and just get bought in all cash? In all cash, yeah. That's the, uh, the great point. Very rare, and yeah. and the, the statistics of once a business goes up for for sale, how many of those actually get done? I want to say it was like a third.
0: A yeah. third, Yeah.
2: Yeah. It was it was very low. So, you know, if, if, if your retirement actually, plan is say, based on – I think it's 20%. Is, is it? 20% yeah, I know. It's still – it's crazy low. the businesses low.
3: that go to market actually get sold. Yeah. And the – I mean, you mentioned the the deal. What's what's the deal? How is it going to be structured? Most of the time, you're not going to get all cash. So is it going to be – there's going to be some terms attached to it. I mean, and I'm guilty of this as a – or used to be. Now that I got my SEPA, I won't do this anymore. <laughs> right. But, you know, as a financial planner, somebody tells me on – pay. okay, well – I see you have a business. How much do you think your business is worth? $5 million. All right, I'm writing down $5 million. I'm putting that in your balance sheet. Right. And I'm going to assume that at some point you're going to liquidate that and it's going to come over and you're going to be able to live off that money. Well, that hardly ever happens that way in reality. So yeah. to, to be able as a you know, financial planner, wealth advisor, to be able to, to look at what is truly the value and what, what kind of terms can you expect when you do exit to help incorporate that into the financial plan, personal financial plan, is really valuable.
2: Yeah and and it's it's a great end of year thing to consider beginning of a new year thing to consider no matter if you're an old business owner young business owner start thinking about it and a lot of people get kind of bothered by the costs associated with it cuz you know it's sometimes it it's not cheap if it's a big company but the money you spend up front yeah if it makes you if it gets you to that 5 million dollar target valuation that you want then it's worth it That's right totally you spend, it. you spend a little money now and you reap the benefits in the long term. So, you know, it's something we don't talk about too often, guys, but I think it's a, it's a great conversation to have. Yeah, you're in planning. Talk Absolutely. Well, let's take a quick break, come back, and uh, take some listener questions. You're listening to Money Talks. Okay, KJ. Ready,
1: up. Little I got money.
2: Welcome back to Money Talks, live from Miami. I know, right? (laughs) I gotta admit, I love I love all the hits we have on the soundboard. (laughs) Nothing but gold. It is. Well, where we left off was talking about some end of year uh, planning ideas, and one of those was business um, exit planning, planning for your business. Um, So, if it's a business valuation you need, exit planning advising, financial planning, anything like that, um, any kind of personal help you need, feel free to reach out to us. We have experts in all those areas. You can reach us at 770-429-9166, and we'll get you in touch with the right person to answer um, whatever it is that you need assistance with.
3: Why don't you tell them how, we can, uh, how they can ask their questions, Nick?
2: As we roll into questions, yeah, if you want to submit your own, you can email them to us at drgeneathensler.com, that's H-E-N-S-S-L-E-R.com, or you can call our question hotline, leave us a message at 1-855-429-9166.
3: We will actually play your question on the air. Oh yeah, you could be it could be your fifteen minutes. Call
2: right, whatever it is, we'll, we'll be happy to answer it for you. Um, speaking of questions, we got a handful of them this week. First one's Benny from Stonecrest. He writes, "I remember hearing a lot about longevity annuities about four, maybe five years ago. How is that market? Are they working like we thought they would, and are they worth looking into?"
0: Good question. So the reason you heard a lot about it a couple of years ago was because there was a tax law change in two thousand fourteen, which had taken this particular version of an annuity. So these are called, these are specifically designated as qualified longevity annuity contracts. So that shortens to QLAC in the common vernacular, right? But they came into the existence 2014. They actually have been around for a number of years, uh, had been used primarily as non-qualified dollars. And the whole concept is, Casey, you asked a question earlier. Yeah, so what is the difference? I mean, aren't all annuities longevity annuities? Yes, but these are very specific because the concept behind them is the client deposits the money and they are expecting that they are not going to have access to the funds and they will eventually receive a guaranteed income stream potentially 5, 10, 15 years out. So in the qualified world, where it becomes more interesting is You can take a client who is having issues, let's say, with regard to their um, required minimum distributions. How many issues do you have clients or how many clients do you have that call you annually and say, why am I having to take this income? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Every one. So what happens in this particular scenario is clients can now deposit as much as $130,000 of their qualified funds into the QLAC and that money is now separated away and does not have to have required minimum distributions hmm. affected. Got now, there's some other stipulations. You can't put – if you had a $130,000 IRA, you could only put as much as 25% of that into this qualified annuity. But if you have a, an account of five hundred six hundred thousand. $600,000 you could go as high as $130,000, and so that, used keep, 100, have, that used to be 100? It used to be 125 when they 125, first came out, and now they've kind of gone up. And they now have set a framework going forward for every couple of years they'll increase it by 10%. Uh, they'll index it every couple of years okay. uh, to have an increase associated with it. But the big deal is um, the concept is they're going to set the $130,000 aside today. It's still as a qualified account, right. but it's going to create an income stream when they hit 75 or hit 80 or hit 85. So you have to predetermine which age you want
3: the annuity benefit to be. Exactly. You
0: set all that on the front end. There are some stipulations. Some carriers will allow for flexibility. If a client enters a scenario where they say, gosh, I set this for income beginning at 80, I need it now, you can. there are some uh, access points that you can... Um, draw some of that down sooner, or you could push it out even further. So if you hit age 80, say, gosh, I really am not interested taking this income now. Maybe I could push it out again to 85. You can only do that one time, though.
3: So what happens if you pass away before taking a benefit?
0: Well, the death benefit is essentially a return of your premium. We've heard that one from the book segment, right? right? So you're not looking to get a return on the dollar. You're looking for the longevity income guarantee that's associated with it. Um, so one idea, I know one company in particular will do a mathematical calculation and give someone what their anticipated rate of return would look like if it had been a, a deposit today and, a, and the income. So they're, if you deposit at age 70 $100,000 and you begin an income at age 80, they're going to put a hypothetical with uh, return to say you're probably going to earn somewhere like 4 4.5% on the total amount of money, if assuming you have normal life expectancy. Right. But um, these have come about. We, we've we done Do you see some. them used often? Well, I, I have actually seen more used than non-qualified funds because in a non-qualified scenario, same concept, you're actually establishing a pension plan. So if someone has come into a significant dollar figure or if they just want to do some planning and they, they do want to see an income, a guaranteed income, mm. Uh, We have seen that that this has come into a popular setting where um, they can access more like a a guaranteed pension plan, Mm -hmm. and they can base their retirement plan on some of the facts that that come from, I have this amount of income I know is coming in. Sure. So uh, these are becoming more interesting because of the fact that they can ab- absolve themselves from required minimum as- distributions. Right. That's one of the key drivers for these QLACs.
3: Um, and you can put it in. You can put it into the QLAC at any age, or does it have to be? You have to be fifty nine and a half. Is there? A- there's
0: there's not a specific age, but it's more for that client that's going to hit age seventy. Yeah. Uh, so you typically wouldn't see it. Um,
3: Because you just rather than take that out of your
0: RMD.
2: right? So you're basically just are you just basically rolling those funds into there?
0: Yeah, so you so the QLAC is extracting if it's in an IRA today, right? Your um, IRA funds, whatever the dollars are invested in, you would take $130,000 and go put it in XYZ insurance company, Mm -hmm. which is now designated in your name as a QLAC, so it's separated away so you're not having to do the RMD calculation. But you do have, um, it is qualified funds. Right. So all dollars that will come in income will be fully taxed when they actually but You, hit. you buy yourself some time from having to. Exactly. And they do protect the client from somehow running out of money. Mm-hmm. That's the whole longevity concept, right? So that there is a guaranteed income that will be there for the rest of their life. Interesting. So, well, yeah, that's, yeah. Some, that's good info there, Jim. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Jim. All right. Next
2: question. We've got Cheryl and Joey from Roswell. We've owned shares of Caterpillar for many years. We've certainly made our profits. We hate to sell. But from what I'm reading, the trade order of China is really going to be taking a toll on the company. Is it time to sell? Yeah, this is a this is a tough one. Um, it's the stock does not look particularly expensive. Valuation looks pretty decent compared to its historical um, P.E. ratios, uh, valuation ratios. And uh, the growth looks attractive. Um, but I have my concerns with, as you said, the trade war and just global growth as a whole. Something I talked about earlier on in the show is commodity prices, right? Yeah. If you have global growth slowing, then you would assume a lot of these commodities, demand is going to go down for them because most of them are used in construction, um, think steel, things like that. So with commodity prices down and expectations for global growth slowing, that's a huge avenue for Caterpillar. Yeah. So the prospects, in my opinion, are just kind of shaky right now. Like I said, value it's come far off the, the year-to-date high of, I think, $178, trading close to 130 now. Well, the last I time just, we had
3: a big dip in commodity prices. I mean, that, that had a huge impact on industrial companies. Absolutely, and these so. are the
2: most cyclical names you can possibly buy. Right. So let's say that in 18 months from now we do go into recession. Who's gonna get hit the worst? It's it's names like Caterpillar. Yeah. So if you've made your money in the name and it doesn't owe you anything, I I, I don't think you're gonna miss a tremendous amount of upside. Um, considering that I do think we're late cycle. I, I would probably go ahead and take your profits here and, and look for another investment. Good. One more t- one more question before we run out of time here, Casey. Hopefully you can get through this one kinda of quick. Um, Marshall from Ableton, my company has a profit-sharing plan rather than 401K. How do these work? Yeah, so, I mean, um,
3: a lot of times a profit-sharing plan and a 401K are kind of tied together into into the company retirement plan. Basically, the profit-sharing, a lot of times they're structured so that the company is not required to contribute to the profit-sharing. But mm-hmm. if they you know they have a good year or they want to make an extra contribution to, to a, the employees, employees, then they can do that through the profit-sharing. And it's not part of the employer's or the employee's deferral, rather. So, I mean, you've got some different limits and things that you know probably going to run out of time here. But um, there's some slight differences. But basically, the biggest difference is one is an employer only. The profit sharing is employer only. The uh, 401k is usually salary deferrals from the employee.
2: All right. So, still a good investment vehicle if you want to invest in. It. We made it, guys. Absolutely. rush We <laughs> made it. What's the market going to do next week? Up, Jim.
0: I say buy an annuity. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Market's going up, in my opinion. Thanks for listening to Money Talks. See you next week.
1: All material presented is compiled from sources believed to be reliable and current, but accuracy cannot be guaranteed. The contents are intended for general information purposes only. Information provided should not be the sole basis in making any decisions and is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified professional, such as a tax consultant, insurance advisor, or attorney. Although this material is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with respect to the subject matter, it may not apply in all situations. This is not to be construed as an offer to buy or sell any financial instruments. It is not our intention to state, indicate, or imply in any manner that current or past results are indicative of future profitability or expectations. Portfolio holdings discussed are subject to change. There is no guarantee that in the future these securities will be held in the Hensler accounts. As with all investments, there are associated inherent risks. Please obtain and review all financial material carefully before investing. Hensler is not licensed to offer or sell insurance products. This overview is not to be construed as an offer to purchase any insurance products.